You're listening to 2, 5, and 10, your source for bullshit-free NHL news, analysis, and insights. Now, here are your hosts, Kevin Naughton and Ben Stewart. Hey everybody and welcome to episode 76 2, 5, and 10. We are excited because, not because the season's over, but because it is the season ending awards. We're going over all that today, but there was also some other news going on in the NHL. What up, Benny? going on uh besides the news updates i know this is our last episode before our first ever lot well live in person whatever you want to call it uh podcast recording that will be taking place next week as i head up to boston and deal with all your horrible accents <laughs> uh, uh for the record they are a thing of beauty but <laughs> uh yeah, I'm excited. We were supposed to do a live one in New York when we went out there that time, but I think we had some time constraints. Uh, there were some liver issues, um, <laughs> you, you know, so we never got around to it. But, yes, I'm excited for this, specifically for this. Uh, next week's episode, we'll go over that later, but I think that'll be a perfect time to start going over. If this thing happens, we are going over our first-round matchups and predictions and everything else so i do think next week's episode is going to be very good for just the hope of hockey yeah i gotta correct you though according to the nhl it's not the first round it's the qualifying round so there's a difference i'm i'm sorry i'm sorry yes (laughs) a qualifying round and the the rob rob the round robins i apologize i hate i i told you this over text message and we're getting into next week's episode this week already i hate the round robin for the top four seeded because it prevents me from predicting the qualifying round and then predicting the first round of the playoffs like ahead of time. Cause I don't know who's going to be playing who yet because the first four seeds aren't set. So that's the only aggravation I have because of it. it well, there's that. And now the whole, they've agreed on the reseeding, which is going to oh, completely yeah, yep. change everything on the other end. So the, I can't say first round, the qualifying round will be very interesting to watch to see what produces in the first round. Yeah, and speaking of frustrating, I know we got some news, was it yesterday out of Buffalo, uh, if another regime change uh, coming down for the Sabres. Yes, Jesus Christ. Um, the Buffalo Sabres, my God. Uh, Jason Botterill fired as the GM in Buffalo. They end up announcing that Kevin Adams is now going to be the new GM. As... A person like myself who is a fan of the Atlantic Division, obviously the Bruins, everybody else, we play Buffalo a lot. I see the product, and I think a little bit of this one has to do with some people did not live up to their expectation because on paper this year, Buffalo was a pretty good team. I know in our preseason predictions, we predicted a lot better season out of them, Mm -hmm. and then they kind of fell flat, and... Obviously, I know blame in Buffalo can go everywhere. Jack Eichel's wearing some. Kruger's wearing some. Jason Botterill ends up eating all of it. I think one of the issues with him was the uncertainty into next year. 
there were so many UFAs on this team. So basically everything was going to be depleted. And then the restricted guys were kind of bubble guys, to be honest. Like no one really solidified themselves as NHL caliber players who are ready to make a really big jump and make a big payday. And can some of this come down to player development within an NHL team? Absolutely. But one thing for me, I looked at their drafts and I was extremely surprised as to what they came up with. 2017, <laughs> Casey Middlestat was their first round pick. That, that, that was their first round pick at number seven. And granted, I also looked at the rest of the first round. So I, I, I want to be very specific. After Casey Middlestad, Michael Rasmussen for the Red Wings, Owen Tippett, Gabriel Velarde, Martin Neckis, uh, Nick Suzuki, Callan Foote, Eric Brandstrom, like some of these guys haven't even cracked NHL rosters yet. So maybe that year was a dud. I, I will give my I will give them my benefit of the doubt there. But it's the other parts where in twenty eighteen you had the number one overall pick, Rasmus Dalin. But in then 2017 draft you came out with probably the best goalie prospect in the whole league in Uka Pekalukanen. why is he not playing yet for like why are we waiting for this like for a quote-unquote development your your whole team needs development like I just don't get the purposes yeah like you were commenting on this change over the summer including RFAs is 15 guys whose contracts expire at the end of this season and when you're trying to build a culture you bring in a new coach like Kruger who I don't think is going anywhere uh ever since the league shut down I've read a handful of articles I've seen tweets of guys on a team really going to bat for him and saying we want him back we love playing for him so you might have found your solution in for your coaching staff already in-house. But with all those free agents, you're not going to keep all of them, obviously. Now you have to, as Kruger and his coaching staff, you have to rebuild that environment again with a whole new team, basically. You're bringing back six, seven guys. I mean, you'll probably replace them with them with prospects from the A, but still, even though they're within your system and your organization, they're new. They're going to have to get their feet wet, adjust to the NHL. They're going to have a lot on their plate even before just trying to find their spot and fit into the, the locker room presence and environment that Kruger's trying to build there. So it's basically two straight years of Kruger being a, a new head coach, essentially. So that stability isn't there. The lack of stability as the organization for the organization as a whole, Kevin Adams is the fourth GM in nine years under the Vigoulis. Uh, they had six coaches in that same time span, they've missed nine straight playoffs. The only, the only time the Sabres have made the playoffs with this ownership group was in 2011, and that was two months after they bought the team, so they had nothing to do with it. This, I know when they came in, there was a lot of expectations and hope because they were bringing a pretty big wallet to the Sabres for the first time, and God knows how long Buffalo was going to be able to not have as the Pagula put it in the press conference there will be no wallet restrictions on the Buffalo Sabres moving forward. Well, where's that gotten them? Nowhere. The uh, first year that uh, 
Botterill was in, they finished 26th overall. This year, they finished 25th overall. There's like, I don't know what it is with the Sabres. I know there's a lack of talent. They've been drafting high. And this is a kind of a warning shot to all the teams out there and fans out there that just want their team to tank, get high picks, and then turn into the Chicago Blackhawks or the Pittsburgh Penguins. There's no guarantee. Look at the Oilers up until this year. So outside of the coaching staff, I don't think there's – it's kind of like the Knicks in NBA. You bring in a coach, there's a lot of expectation. You spend some money, they're gone a year or two later to start all over again. Then you bring in a new GM, and he brings in his own coach. It's just this vicious cycle. And combine that with what's going on with – uh, the coronavirus and how the off season is just going to be the most unusual, unusual off season that any team has faced in modern times, probably since World War II. It's not ideal, obviously, to have that as the backdrop for the summer where you're basically rebuilding your entire NHL franchise with a new GM who's also working with a coach for the first time and Ralph Kruger and navigating the complexities of what's going to be going on that this offseason, which is probably probably going to be October, November uh, for, no, for an offseason. So I just don't know where they go from here. Like Kevin Adams, he has no experience in the front office in terms of hockey ops. I know he was in business operations. He, I, I saw conflicting reports. Like he, he's been, basically been being groomed for some type of position with the Sabres. But you're putting him, he's not interim. He's the GM. I don't know if that's the right choice. It feels like, again, an organization like the Sabres is going with cheap and comfortable over making a big splash. I mean, for a team like Buffalo and what they've gone through and the heartache and the hardship, Dean Lombardi's out there. Why are you not having Dean Lombardi come in and fix this? Like, there are huge names. And you know what? Maybe Kevin Adams could be that guy to write the ship. I don't know. But to have all these other people out there and for experienced GMs now, in essence, you know how they said that checkbook is going to be open. And basically, you only have six players returning. A experienced general manager could build his own team right now, could come in and decide who he wants in, who he doesn't, and go from there. Like, this is almost a completely blank chalkboard. There's a couple of names left. Now, what you went off of before in the sense of time frame and everything else, how on earth, especially as owners, how can they think a three-year turnaround between GMs every time is going to change something. How do they feel that every three years they fire a coach and hire someone? Like, do they have plans set in place as the owners, as the management team here? Are they just winging this by the edge of their seats? Like, it just seems completely in utter chaos up there. And now you have Jack Eichel on the hook for years and millions of dollars. Who's to say he even wants to go back there? You have one of the biggest names in hockey, and there's no guarantee about anything now. Yeah. I I know he's been outspoken, Jack has, 
He's gotten a little bit older. I don't want to say wiser because you can see the frustration on his face. Like, he does not have a good poker face. If I'm him and I know I'm the guy, I'm that sheriff. I don't know how you don't sit down with the owners and say, what the fuck are you doing? Like, what are you doing? Give me an answer as to what we're doing, and I will tell you if I want to stay or not. Well, the thing is, you look at the teams that have been successful since the salary cap was instituted. It's stability. The Blackhawks, the Bruins, like, there's the Lightning. You'd never see turnover. Like, it's the same guys year after year, smart salary cap decisions, a real lack of coaching changes. It's just, this is it, and we're not going to let one bad year change our course. We're going to retool, we're going to reevaluate, and then we're going to take it from there. The Sabres... You don't know what you're going to get. So basically, going back to your point about Eichel, even if he's fully bought in, which I don't know if he is. I'm not saying he's going to demand a trade or anything, but I'm sure he's like at a loss right now. If you're a free agent, I wouldn't be touching Buffalo with a 10-foot pole. Even if Jack Eichel called me and said, come on, ride shotgun with me. We can turn it around. I need my tri-sidle to be to my McDavid. I'm not going. Because I might sign up because they're promising, listen, we're going to be investing money into this team. We're going to be bringing guys in, some talent in. The coaching staff's great. That coaching staff might be gone halfway through next year. You don't know? Yeah. Like, so that's – and plus the city of Buffalo, no offense. They always had trouble attracting free agents. But I remember you and I texted about this when it happened. I think the turning point – at least for now, in the tenure of the ownership of the Buffalo Sabres was when they traded Ryan O'Reilly because he wanted to win too much. Well, hey, I mean, wouldn't Jack Eichel be like a really good player if he had a guy like Ryan O'Reilly? Yeah, like, I'm just crazy. I'm just wondering. I mean, like a one-two punch down the middle of Eichel and Ryan O'Reilly would look pretty good, especially since Ryan O'Reilly was a pretty good one-two punch with Braden Shen down the middle for a Stanley Cup champion. Huh. That's weird. So when that trade happened, you and I, I remember texting like, one, their return was shit. But two, he, I mean, he spoke out to the media, which is rare in this sport. But he was pissed because of the losing. And they're like, we can't have that here, speaking to the media about that. That to me meant the front office and to lesser extent front office, but mostly the ownership was more concerned about looking good from a PR point of view than from a winning point of view. And that to me was the fork in the road right there, that decision. And you can see O'Reilly's career and the St. Louis blues path versus the Sabres path since then. It's, it's just amazing that they can just keep going down the same foxhole with the same results and they continuously do the same things. Like, isn't that the definition of insanity? Doing the same thing over and over repeatedly with the same results? Hey, trust me. As a Jets fan, you don't need to tell me about doing the same thing over and over again and seeing the same shit. Were you Maybe. named after the Jets? <laughs> Everybody in my... So my family's kind of... I have a huge family, uh, including 
step siblings. I'm the youngest of nine. Most of my family are New York Giant fans. I'm the only Jets fan. We have a Patriots fan. We have a a 49ers fan and a Cowboys fan. So you guys are all over the place. Yeah, <laughs> but again, the only one in the family is a Jets fan, and you know that's worked out real well for me. So trust me, I know all about this. I feel I feel for <laughs> hardcore Sabres fans. Feeling the pain. Well, <laughs> I guess from going from feeling the pain to being at the top of the mountain, we're going to go with our uh, end-of-season awards. Where do you want to start, Benny? Um, I think, for me anyway, these in order from least suspenseful to most interesting. I think starting with the Vezina Trophy for best goaltender in the league this year, um, for me, it wasn't even close, surprisingly, because at the beginning of the year, I don't think either of us would have ex- expected the season that this guy had. Uh, but who's your pick for Vezina? See, I have two different guys. I know, shocker. but um, You can't pick two for one award. <laughs> I, I, I know, but I, I have them for two separate reasons. So my guy, based off of numbers, would be Tuka Rask. But if you're going the other way as to what they did and they were not expected to do, I don't know how you don't pick Connor Hellebuck here. Because Tuka Rask on the other end, the defense he has in front of him makes him look a lot better. The defense that Connor Hellebuck had this year, god-awful. And for him to be able to carry that team into a real playoff spot, not a fake one, a real one, was outrageous. Like I can't believe the season that the kid had. And if the Winnipeg Jets end up winning the first, I'm sorry, the qualifying round, it's simply because of this guy. So I have to give it to Connor Hellebuck and the season that he's had up north and how little help he's had, more importantly, just off of strictly goaltending, how good he's been. Yeah, so that's why I want to go Vezina first. It was a landslide for me in my mind. Connor Hellebuck, like you said, the team that he's playing behind, he's faced 1,656 shots this season, the most in the NHL. He, but he stopped the most high-quality shots in NHL this year. 19.9 goals saved above expectation, the most in NHL by nine goals, which is abs- absurd uh, if you know that uh, advanced stats like that. Uh, his save percentage, 922. It's top 10. Uh, he has 31 wins on the year. I know wins and goal tending isn't a great barometer of success, but... 31 wins for a bubble team. He's second in the league to uh, Andre Vasilevsky. Um, and the other thing is he might get some votes for the Hart Trophy because without him, I think they finished dead last in that division, like even behind uh, Chicago. Like if you put, if you replace Halleck with uh, a, a, Bron- a Cam Talbot, who I like, but just to drop off in production, I think they finish in the lottery. Absolutely. I, I I agree completely with you there. He's had a year that many people can only dream of. He's been incredible. So moving on towards our slightly less uh, obvious, but for the Norris Trophy, I'll go first on this one. Uh, I went with 
Predators defenseman Roman Yossi. Uh, I know a lot of people like John Carlson this year, mostly because of offense, and I refuse to give the Norris Trophy to a guy just because of point total. Uh, just to run through some numbers really quick for Roman Yossi. Uh, he's second in a league among all skaters with puck possession time per game at 2 minutes and 32 seconds. He's fifth in the league among all skaters with 149 end-to-end rushes. He averages almost 26 minutes of ice time a game. He's first in, at, among all NHL defensemen in possession, offensive zone possession. First in zone entries. First in zone exits. Second in expected goals. Second in pass completions. And he's the best all-around defenseman on that team in the Western Conference. And I think at this point, at least for this year, in the entire league. I have to agree with you on 90% of that. Uh, I do love Roman Yossi, and his advanced stats are fucking out of this world. Uh, I have to go with John Carlson this year. The year that this kid's had, it's been crazy. And I feel like when the talk of elite defensemen comes in this league, he gets shafted every time. And don't get me wrong. I know a lot of his points come on the power play because he's that top guy that feeds that puck cross ice to Alex Ovechkin. But at the same time, he's made that pass now for 10 fucking years. Stop the pass. If you can't stop the <laughs> OV shot, stop the pass. Like the the kid has finally broken out 75 points. If this year finished, do you think he probably could have had 100 points? I mean, there was what, like 12, 13 games left? I don't know if he would got would have gotten to 100. I think he would have definitely cracked 80, which is still really fucking good. I'm not. So my issue with Carlson is it's kind of like the Brent Burns syndrome. He is a game changing offensive force. He has good size. He isn't shitty defensively like Eric Carlson is when he won a Norris Trophy. But I just have lasting memories of the Rangers just fucking torching him whenever he was on the ice defensively in the playoffs the last few years. And point totals, the the talent around him, I think, penalizes him, even though he would probably still put up 60-plus points in his prime on a lot of teams in this league. I just, when it comes down to the Norris Trophy, I kind of put it like this. 20 seconds left, game seven of the cup, you're up by one, defensive zone face-off. Who is the defense when you have out there against a guy like McDavid? And I couldn't choose John Carlson over Roman Yossi. See, and I feel like this is the problem the NHL has put themselves in where they need two Norris trophies. One for need, the like, offensive. offensive defenseman or something. Yeah, because I feel like the league itself has shifted that way, especially when it's come to voting. That basically if you have the most points or the most goals as a defenseman, you will win this trophy. And the defensive part of it is thrown out the window. When you look back to just 10 years ago when Nick Lidstrom was winning Norris trophies, I mean, he was doing it both ways. Not only was he putting up 50 points, but he was also completely a shutdown guy. And I do think that the NHL as a whole has to get back to that because it has to be for the best defenseman. That That's what this trophy is written as. So just because, for example, I will throw out Tony D'Angelo. He is... Tony D. 
he is fourth among points for defensemen at 53 points. Would you even consider him in the race for the Norris Trophy? Oh, absolutely not. So that's that's the whole point I have as to it needs to be complete and utter. As to your one point about who you have left, who you would go with on the end, if you look at the Capitals' defense, you have to have them out there. I mean, yeah, you have to, but if you had a choice between the two. Oh, no, I, I know, but when you, look, <laughs> when you look at that defensive core, I mean, John Carlson, Dmitry Orloff, Ratko Gudis, Michael Kempney, Nick Jensen, Brendan Dillon, Jonas, I can't even pronounce his last name, Single Hoffler. <laughs> like, you you got to go Carlson and Orlov, or you have to put Dylan out there for a guy who's going to block that shot, whichever way you're going to go. But I, I just think on a team like Washington that is extremely stacked up and down, I mean, he's out there. He's there. Listen, he can't always be right, you know? I, I know. I know. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. I'm trying. Um. All right, so this is where I think it's going to get interesting uh, between the two of us. The Jack Adams, the Calder, and the Hart. I'm saving the Hart for last. So I think if we move to the Jack Adams for Coach of the Year, uh, several good choices. I feel like I know where you're going to be leaning on this one, so I wanted to get your your choice, one choice, hopefully you don't have two, <laughs> of the Coach of the Year in the National Hockey League. I would, I'm going to defer to you on this one first. I want to see where you're going. John Tortorella. Shocker. All right, proceed. Going towards, it's kind of, it was between him and Mikey Sullivan in Pittsburgh. The reason why I went with Torts is they were expected to be one of the worst teams in the league this year. I know they still had some talent on the back end. Nobody knew what they were going to have in goal. They, no offense. I mean, they still don't have any offense. They're third worst in the league in offense. And they're in a playoff spot in the Eastern Conference and in the highly competitive Metro Division. The coaching structure, I mean, and everybody's known us about Tortorella's entire career. It's just that he's an asshole and wears out his welcome. The fact that he's been able to basically drag this team to a playoff spot with the third worst offense in the league, unknowns in goal, and still just continue to have that structure and filling in uh, through injuries to guys like Seth Jones, Ryan Murray. I think he's done much more with much less than a lot of other coaches out there. I know Elaine Vigneault is getting a lot of love, and I will always love A.V. for his time with the Rangers. But the Flyers have a lot more talent. Oh, yeah. The Penguins have a lot more talent. I know they dealt with injuries. So I kind of always tend to lean towards a coach who got more out of less and brought a team to a playoff spot or on the verge of a playoff spot when they shouldn't be anywhere near there. I don't know if this is going to shock you or not, but I agree with you. I do think that John Tortorella is the man to win this just based off what you said. The offensive production that he gets is shit. When you look at it from the other side, he has implemented his defensive system and structure that will win you hockey games. And that's what he's been doing there the last couple of years. You look at it further down the list of his goalies, his A1 was gone. He had a guy named Elvis come in and close the door for him. Like It's almost like he has the King Midas touch this, this year where no matter what hand he is dealt, he is coming out with the pot of gold. And yep. 
I agree with you tenfold that John Tortorella deserves this this year. I was with you when you said Mike Sullivan as well, just because of the injuries that Pittsburgh has had and for where he was able to keep them because the injuries that they had, these were not just day-to-day. These were huge names, and they were out months at a time. And for him to keep them there was good, but like you said, the depth that Pittsburgh has compared to Columbus isn't even close. So for John Tortorella to make do with what he has, I'm with you. All right. Well, I thought you were you were definitely going towards Sully on that one, so I'm glad we agreed. I love Sully. Um, you know I love Sully. So. <laughs> well, hey, look, two Boston boys were in, in contention here, so I think that's a win for you guys. Yeah, take it. Um, moving on to the Calder, just basically a two-man race between uh, Kale McCarr and Quinn Hughes. I wish Adam – I'm not saying he should win, but I wish Adam Fox got more consideration for the season he's had with the Rangers – um, he's basically our number one defenseman um, ahead of a guy like Jacob Truba. But I understand why it's McCarr and Quinn Hughes. Um, you could go either way on this one. Uh, I just, for the role that he plays overall, the he's the, essentially the number one defenseman from game one. Mm-hmm. Um, he is Cam Lacar. That's my calendar pick. Uh, I know they have similar point totals. I know they have similar ice time. But if you really dig into it, Quinn Hughes kind of gets protected a little bit more with defensive zone face-offs versus offensive zone starts. Uh, he plays with a guy like Tyler Myers, who's a really good, at least at this point, you can count on him to not be a fuck-up. Uh, his offense is overrated. He does have His advanced stats aren't great. But when you have a guy like Cal McCarr who's playing with, you know, like Ian Cole, sometimes Ryan Graves. I know Gerard's up there. Johnson's been dealing with injuries. But he's basically been carrying that defensive uh, group in Colorado. So that's what gives me the slight nod to Cal McCarr. I went with McCarr as well just because he, he battled some injuries at points this year too. So he didn't have as many games played as Hughes. Um Hughes did start turning it on though there at the end. Yeah, uh, he he was definitely on fire, but I, I think a huge thing here when you're actually looking at it is the goal part of it. Kiel McCarr, twelve goals. Uh, Hughes not even close. He, he's not there. Forty five assists to get him to fifty three points. So I I can't fault him and say he's not offensive because when you have that many assists, but how many are primary assists? I just feel like yeah. Makar is completely in the mix here. He is the little engine that could for him. And ever since he stepped in there since the last playoffs, he's done it for that team. And he came out flying this year, too. Um, so, Kiel Makar, call their trophy winner. Track it up. Chalk it up, Chris Stratford. All right. And, uh, you know, on to the next one. All right, last two. This is the really contentious ones. Hart Trophy. Who's your MVP of the league this year? I had to lean certain ways and kind of take a whole bunch of stuff into consideration. But the biggest thing for me is where the team would be without this person. And... I ended up going with Leon Dreisaitl. And it, it's not just because of the points, because 
he plays alongside Connor McDavid. But he's been better than McDavid this year. And, and we talk about the extent of how good Connor McDavid is and how him and Crosby are one and two in the game. And McDavid missed time this year, too, and Drysaddle basically carried that franchise. Carried them. And they're not anywhere near there without him. And now going forward after what he's done, I don't know how he's not in that top five consideration. Because if you told me to give a top 10 at the beginning of this year before the season started, I don't think he's there. I don't. And then after the year he had, I don't know how he's not in your top five. Like just complete and utter maniac this year, getting this team to where they are. The points, the production was real. Did it without McDavid at points. And obviously when you have McDavid there, life is a really good, (laughs) but without him and to still do it, you're even better. So that's why I went with him. The interesting thing was in Edmonton, they played them together for the first half of the year until around December. And then a plan was to break them up uh, because it would have saved some of their legs. And uh, they wanted to kind of distribute the offense for the second half of the year because of some study that the Oilers organization did. And it when they split them up, they both got even better. Uh, so dry saddle, very worthy pick. Uh, I'm not going to dry saddle. I'm going with Artemi Panarin, and I I can hear your groaning internally. All you Boston fuckheads suck my dick, but Artemi <laughs> Panarin is my hard trophy winner for two reasons over Dreisaitl. There is no Connor McDavid. There is no backup. I know Zibanejad's had a great year, but Panarin, 95 points in 69 games, but when he's on the ice... The Rangers earned 66% of the goals first in the league, ahead of McDavid, ahead of Dreisaitl, ahead of Crosby, Malkin, everybody. When he's off the ice, they have the worst mark in the league. The difference between the Rangers with Panarin is where they are now, basically essentially tied for a wild card spot before the shutdown. Without Panarin, they're the only teams that are statistically would have been worse than them are the Detroit Red Wings and the Ottawa Senators. So that's the difference between the Rangers with Panarin and the Rangers without Panarin. And to me, I see him day in and day out as a Rangers fan. I've seen him since training camp. I see the little ways he impacts the game. It's not all just offense. He's a fantastic uh, two-way player, which was surprising to me. I thought he was a kind of one-sided when he was from his days in Columbus and Chicago. To me, I just can't think of a guy who's just more important to a franchise than Panarin, even ahead of a guy like Dreisaitl. And that's fair because the beginning of the year when he wasn't playing or not up to par as to what he was, it was visible. And then he fucking turned it on. And he had one, like two bad games in a row where he didn't record a point. I think he's had multiple streaks this year of a point in 11 plus straight games. So he's just always involved, and he would. There was one time where he didn't get a point in two straight games, and it was so no. I mean, the Rangers lost both games, and it was so noticeable that Panarin just wasn't involved that it stood out so much that that's what kind of led me down that path of if this guy just has an off game, we're fucked. And I don't know what else you need from a most valuable player where if you have a bad day, you're gonna have a hard time 
even having a chance at winning a game. Uh, so Drysaddle, he's probably going to get it. I agree if he does get it, well-deserved. Uh, but since I'm the commissioner here and I'm making my pick, Panarin gets it. <laughs> so the last one we have here, and I know it's weird to save the Selkie trophy for last, uh, but I figure we have probably a pretty good discussion on this one for who the Selkie award winner should be this year. Uh, I know Sorelli, Sean Couturier, the gold standard, Patrice Bergeron, is going to be up there with real-time votes. So take it away. Who's your Selkie award winner? I have to go Patrice Bergeron, and I know Shocker, Homer. I just I don't see anybody else in the league who does it as good as he does in the sense of every facet of the game. And Dominic Sorelli is in there, well-deserved. He had a great year. Uh, he's really starting to lock down his defensive play. And I know this is strictly for the best defensive forward, but Dominic Sorelli doesn't offer you shit offensively. Uh, Anthony Sorelli? Anthony Sorelli, Jesus Christ. I, I went extremely Italian there, and I went Dominic. <laughs> I went Dominic, Dominic the donkey. donkey. Yeah, yeah, I fucked yeah. up. I fucked up. <laughs> One of those days. I I just don't see it. And... One person I, I did consider deeply in my own thing. I wasn't going off stats or anything else. Jonathan Huberdeau. But I just kind of see Patrice Bergeron. He, he's the big horse in this stable. And it takes a lot for me to legitimately say that somebody else is better than him and to take him out of there. You could legitimately name this trophy after him when he retires. Yeah. So until someone blows me away points-wise, performance-wise, analytics-wise, like it's just so hard to say for a guy I watch night in and night out as to how good he is, someone be better than him. It, it's, it's difficult for me to say that. For me, my only question when it comes to a guy like Bergeron is, does he just get it because of his reputation some years? Like, I'm not saying yeah, he's... I would agree. Yeah, absolutely. You know what I mean? It's like kind of like Griffey in center field with the gold gloves. Like, is he just getting it because he's Ken Griffey Jr.? Um, but yeah, Bergeron, you know how much I sing his praises? He's my favorite non-ranger of like the last 10 years. I am not going with him this year for the Selkie Trophy. I'm going with Ryan O'Reilly in St. Louis and... There's just a couple reasons why, and I know I'm just I'm a stats guy that might annoy some people, but my, the reason why I'm going with Ryan O'Reilly is just the situations that he finds himself in, and I know it's right up there with Bergeron, like it was neck and neck of me, but for me, uh, but O'Reilly ranks sixth in the league in takeaways among forwards. Bergeron is 39th. Defensive zone faceoffs. They're both centers, so this isn't, I feel like, a very even uh, comparison. Ryan O'Reilly is first with 593. Bergeron is 32nd with 358, nearly double. Shorthanded ice time per game among NHL forwards. Ryan O'Reilly is 48th. Patrice Bergeron is 87th. So I know Couturier is up and coming. Sorelli, I mean, Sorelli's fine. I think one guy that's really underrated is Dunone in uh, Montreal, but I don't think he has a shot at winning it this year. 
overall, Patrice Bergeron is the best two-way forward of what? Our generation. Years? Yeah. 15 years. But I think this year is what the award's for. And I think just because of the offensive production, the role he plays on the team, the importance to the team, and then also when you're looking at some of the stats and you dig into it for defensive production, which is, I know, hard to measure sometimes, I just think Ryan O'Reilly uh, ekes it out this year over Bergeron. A question I have for you is, I know Patrice Bergeron is very heavy in the sense of in the defensive zone on the right-hand side of the ice, he's going to take that face off. And he's going to win it like 80% of the time. Yes. <laughs> I, but we also have David Krejci right behind him. So do you think that just strictly off the of face-offs that Ryan O'Reilly is taking that many because, you know what, Braden Shen is an incredible player, incredible centerman. Yeah, Are they just, just nervy like, and nervous? They have and no other face? choice. <laughs> yeah, you know, so it's like, and I'm not knocking you because obviously the numbers are there, but it, it, yeah, I feel like this award every year is probably the hardest to pick because Norris, like we said, has changed to a certain degree. Hart, when it comes out to it, there's probably going to be three people that are in the running. And I guarantee you the NHL will probably pick Connor McDavid instead of Panarin or Dreisaitl <laughs> just because he's the golden boy. Just things. But this specific trophy, stats, analytics, players around the league, like I feel like this is a legitimate gripe every year for getting this right. Because if you're not getting this trophy right, there's no point in having it around anymore. Yeah. So I just feel like the NHL, whoever they pick, it needs to be right. That That's just the only thing with me. Yeah, I mean, just to finish your thought on the face-offs, if you want to just look at individual the success of the face-offs and maybe not the numbers, they're basically in a dead heat. Uh, one percentage point separates them. Bergeron is at 57.9, and O'Reilly is at 56.5. Uh, listen, going back to the Norris conversation we had, if the deciding factor for this, if they were so close stats-wise, production-wise, to everything else, my choice would come down to like it was for the Norris. If I had to choose between 20 seconds left, defensive zone draw, game seven at a cup, and you're up by one, who would I want out there? It's Patrice Bergeron. Um, like, without a doubt. I would have Patrice Bergeron. I would trust Patrice Bergeron to do job interviews for me. That's how much I just like, yeah, go in there and take care of it. I'm sure you'll handle it. Um, I I feel like his legacy though, too, that first Olympic team in 2010, mm. he made that team strictly to take defensive zone faceoffs. Yeah. That was it. That was all (laughs) they brought him on for strictly for that. So uh, I think that alone speaks volumes as to in all of team Canada, all of that talent and everything else that is there. He made that team just to make sure, like you said, there's 10 seconds left to get a defensive zone draw. Who are you putting out there? That's the guy. Yep. Yeah, I mean, he's I mean, a first ballot Hall of Famer. He's the best defensive forward we've seen as adults uh, in our lifetime. So 
I understand the Bergeron pick. Just looking at some stats, I was like, there's such a discrepancy in some of these that I was looking at that it gave me an nod to O'Reilly. We got, and unfortunately for Bruins fans, we got to see it the head to head match, head to head matchup, and who won a cup in the end. So, <laughs> yeah, we did. <laughs> um, but other than that, the last thing I know we wanted to hit on uh, just briefly is a report came out this past week that. The NHL, it's not official yet, but the NHL has essentially kind of granted Las Vegas as one of the two hub cities uh, for the qualifying round and the playoffs, whatever else, once this gets started, probably probably a little over four or five weeks from now is when we're anticipating the qualifying round to begin. So I think it would, would be good if we just kind of touched on or if we gave our pick based on some of the qualifications that the NHL has released on what the second hub city should be. Um, And just for a refresh, they're looking for plenty of hotels and the ability to have the players and support staff stay within like that, that bubble. So you can't just keep the players in a hotel. They're going to want to go out and do some stuff. They're going to want to, you know, go out to restaurants, things like that. Uh, the league is definitely looking for a place where there's enough facilities where you can play multiple games at the same time or back-to-back-to-back and not worry about uh, overtime, things like that. Um, COVID-19, like, is there a ep- current epidemic in that city? Is everything stable? So I think with that out of the way, Las Vegas is one. Do you have a pick where you don't have to worry about 14-day quarantines before guys can show up. It's just what NHL city in your mind meets those requirements and kind of fits the bill? See, this is where I feel like the NHL hits their double-edged sword. I feel like Toronto hits that bill even though I don't want it to be Toronto. I don't. (laughs) Why not? (laughs) Because this is where the double-edged sword comes in. The majority of NHL players are from Canada. When you break it down as to which province, it's mainly Ontario in that greater Toronto area. So if you want to put players in a quote-unquote bubble, Mm. don't put them in a place where they're basically fucking home. Like it, it, it's pretty simple. That like the temptation, the temptation, exactly. And the other thing is this: I believe with their first pick in Las Vegas. I did not think that Vegas had the infrastructure hockey wise to handle this strictly off of facilities and things like that. I know they have the hotels. I know they have the transportation. I know they check the box on everything else. And with this currently being quiet, maybe this is a good place for the players to be in Vegas because they can still hit the restaurants. They can kind of blow off a little bit of steam. Great. You go to Toronto where hockey's king. I think it's a dangerous situation. People are autographs, pictures. I feel like everyone's going to get close when they shouldn't. And that's going to be one of the factors here. And the NHL has still not come out and said as to what the protocol is going to be as to if a player gets sick. Does this shut down? Is it just the player? Is it going to be a whole team due to they've been in contact with the player? There's so many variables, but 
I personally just feel that Toronto is not a wild card in a good way, a bad wild card because the temptation is there. And okay. that's why I just don't like that. But that is the biggest rumor right now that Toronto is the place it's going. The other thing is, so Vegas, they do have uh, six sheets of ice within city limits for practices and games. They have obviously T-Mobile arena, uh, but there's another arena in the city that has two NHL regulation size rinks. And since there's going to be no fans, you don't have to worry about uh, having plenty of seating. It's basically, you just need NHL regulation size in good to great condition. The guys can be comfortable playing on and that our uh, network cameras can get the proper angles. Um, so I think that's why they also lean towards Vegas. I didn't think about that when it came to Toronto. My issue of Toronto is, like you said, not so much the temptation for the players, but if these guys are going to, they might be there for six weeks. If they're going to want to go around, uh, leave the hotel, like you said, get restaurants, they're not going to be able to just do it. Like I know Vegas is a turned out to be a great hockey market. Um, I just think it's a little bit more spread out. There's more of a sprawl in Las Vegas where the guys can basically get escorted to restaurants and pretty much not to worry about it. Um, but Canada hasn't given, the prime minister hasn't given the okay that they're just going to relax the 14-day mandatory quarantine when you enter Canada for foreign nationals from America, from Europe, from Russia. So... If they're choosing a Canadian city for the second hub, they got to figure that out now and then tell all these guys, okay, if you're playing in Vancouver or Edmonton or Toronto, you got to go there now so you're cleared out of quarantine before training camp starts. So they don't have much time. If they if they prefer their second city to be in Canada, they got to make that decision by like the end of next week. Uh, but if I'm in charge, I think it comes down to two cities for me. And I know I just talked about the quarantine thing. Vancouver is one of my picks. They have plenty of hotel space. The restaurant scene there is fantastic. The guys are, it's a very comfortable city. Um, they have plenty of ice sheets. So I think Vancouver is a good choice. The other ish, uh, the other one that I have is kind of a, I guess a surprise for the most part is Chicago. Um, they were talking about LA for a while. California's having a spike. I don't know if LA is the right spot. The mayor there is fucking insane. Uh, but Chicago, you know, obviously the United Center, they've had big events there. Uh, they have plenty of chains for hotels. They have plenty of restaurants. They're a big city, big American city. They can handle this. They've had convent, uh, Democratic National convention, Conventions there before. Like They can handle this situation. The only issue is I think it's basically coming down to which Canadian city can handle it. I don't think they're going to go to another American city. But if they go, if they don't go to Toronto, they're going to have basically two Western Conference cities as the hosts. And then how would they work out not having one of those teams that play in Vancouver or play in Edmonton have to like avoid that? You know what I mean? So I think you want to avoid Vegas playing Vancouver or Vegas playing Edmonton in the first or second round or whatever. And then one of those teams is home essentially. Cause I know the plan initially was 
They would have one hub city be from the Western Conference, one hub city be from the Eastern Conference, and then the Eastern Conference playoffs would happen in a Western Conference city and vice versa. If you have two Western Conference, that kind of throws a, a hindrance to that plan. So I think it's basically Vegas and whatever Canadian city they feel comfortable going to. Um, to be honest, the way New York's going right now, we, we're one of the healthiest cities in America now in terms of COVID. We will, Yesterday we had six COVID deaths, which still it's six deaths, but we were at 800 a day, like a month and a half, two months ago. Um, we have Barclays, MSG, Prudential, plenty of hotels, the restaurants. We even have Nassau Coliseum. We can probably pry the locks off the door. Um, so you have plenty of ice there. You have the practice facilities. It's a little more spread out, but um, I think if this was taking place a month from now, New York would be higher up on the list. So if it came to a Canadian city, obviously I liked your explanation for not going to Toronto, but then you're stuck with two Western Conference cities. And obviously for TV views and things like that, I'm assuming it's going to be very difficult if you end up in two Western Conference places. But one other random thing you brought up vancouver i completely agree i mean they had an olympics what what is the olympic yeah. village doing like that could completely <laughs> house everything yeah so i mean the only thing to me on the other end is if you're trying to get people to go which i'm sure you are is how do you coordinate times for players for out here so would they just do a matinee game like a one o'clock their time and it's a four o'clock our time and well you know mostly everybody's still home so yeah we'll just do it four o'clock their time if they see it they see it if not they by the time they get home it's only the second period so it's not too bad i think to be honest what i've been hearing on twitter from guys like lebron is they're going to treat it like a normal uh it's kind of like a playoff in the sense of they would have two at seven or like one at seven, one at eight, and then one at nine, one at 10, or like two at 10 o'clock, like kind of how they scheduled a Stanley Cup playoffs last year and the, and the year before that. So they may not even do like afternoon games. They might just keep it at night because a lot of places are opening up. People are going back to work or at least working from home. So they might just do double up start times. Like they'll have, even if it's 4 o'clock out west, they might have them start at 4, but it's 7 o'clock here to watch the Bruins play, like you said. So I don't know if they'll do afternoon. Maybe probably on a weekend, they'll probably do like a, a 12, a 3, a 7, and a 10 or something like that. I'll tell you what, if they did that, I would be the worst father in the world. <laughs> I would just I would just be, guess what, kids? We're watching hockey again. What do you mean watching? We're watching hockey again. Only thing the TV's playing. The TV's broken. Only hockey's on it. I don't know. I, I'll say this. I know we're looking forward to next week for the live pod up in Boston. If by some chance it happens, the Bruins and the Rangers play again, which I hope not because I can't be in an 0-2 hole when it comes to talking shit in playoff matchups with guys like Stratford. But if there's a weekend game in Boston even though we won't be going to the game, obviously. Like, I'd rotate weekends during that series. Like, I'd go up to Boston one weekend. You can come down to New York the next weekend. We can do live podcasts after the game, whatever. 
I, I am a okay with that. It's funny you say that because uh, me, Kev, and Mr. Murph were in a text message the other day, and uh, Mr. Murph said he just hopes that that Irish bar by the Garden's open by then for the playoffs because he's ready to watch some hockey and drink beer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he might have to get to drink to go, but yeah, I'm sure it's going to be open at some point. Yeah, so no, I'd be a okay with that too. All right, uh, I think we'll know both hub cities. So today we're recording on Thursday, June 18th. I think by next Friday, we're going to have what two host cities are chosen and kind of what the plan is for training camp and the health protocols and everything else. I think they got to get that going like right now. Yeah, it needs to be out there before it's too late. Yep. Uh, Anyway, I know next week we'll talk about our qualifying round picks. I think it'll also be interesting to go into how – this delay impacts the off season and kind of does the NHL just start their season from now on in January and run through August and don't compete with the NFL and major league baseball playoffs and stuff like that. But that's for next week. Potentially let's wrap this up. Who do you got for shout outs? Uh, so shout outs today. I have the boys of the JHF. I don't know. I was talking to Bobo earlier and then we ended up talking to Maxi, and then it was, Lorenzo was on the call. Phil was on a call. Made, like it, it just seemed like the old group was getting back together. So uh, the JHF boys. Uh, I do have a... I, I'm trying to make this seem as positive as possible. So uh, 20 years ago today, my grandmother had passed away. And the woman was an absolute saint. You can ask anybody and everybody... Oh my God. Every, I was at a wake a couple of months ago and they said, your grandmother was a saint. She put up with a lot. Everybody, your grandmother was a nice person. And she was, she, she was genuinely a really nice woman. And now it's funny because, you know, as you get older, you think about certain things. And I was laughing the other day because I was telling Amanda, the house right next door to us, after we had bought ours, they had tore it down. They built a brand new house. And I still laugh every time I look at it. I say, you know what? It's almost a good thing my grandmother wasn't here because her and my grandfather would have bought that house. And <laughs> every day it would have been the kids. Like uh, Amanda would be eating soup every day. She's not a soup eater like that, you know, dealing with the Portuguese lifestyle. So it, it's just definitely humorous. Uh, Favo on the other side. Love you. Miss you. I know you're watching down. Uh, I know you love the kitties. They they already love you too. So all is good on my end. Off to you, Benny. All right. Uh, shout outs this week. First lady. Uh, she's going out to Boston this weekend. Uh, in advance, she's doing a little pre-scout work uh, for <laughs> me for the city of Boston before I get up there. So she's an advanced scout. That's her official title. Um, so, yeah, she's going up there, have the apartment to myself uh, for the first time and three months, four months at this point. Uh, so definitely a lot of naked vacuuming going on. So I'll send you some pics, Fuchs. I was going to say, uh, crank that thing till you get a scab on it, pal. <laughs> <laughs> um, I also want to give a shout-out. Uh, it's kind of a shout-out to Big Kev and a, an oops to Redder. <laughs> Last weekend, she posted on her story of your two little ones kind of like play wrestling in a, in a backyard. Uh with Cam like pushing Emma down and Emma chasing after him and everything else. And 
I replied and I was like, Your backyard's looking great. And she's like, <laughs> I wish this is Big Kev's. So shout out to Big Kev. That backyard looks pretty fucking sick. Uh, and apologies to Rudder for making her feel bad about uh, her backyard. <laughs> the, the funniest thing about that, now that you say that, you were not the only person who was like, oh my God, what do you do to your grass? It's so green. She's like, it's it's not my grass. <laughs> uh, so I'm sure, Big Kev, if you're listening, that'll make you feel real good that everybody saw your backyard and was like, shit, that's nice. Um, and last thing I got is happy trails to the New York Islanders who are once again without a home. They left Nassau Coliseum to go to Brooklyn. Brooklyn didn't want them. They went back to Nassau Coliseum. And now, unexpectedly, Nassau Coliseum has closed their doors indefinitely until a new owner comes in. So right now, the New York Islanders do not have a home arena for next season lined up. So maybe they'll come crawling to the Rangers to play at MSG on Ranger off days. Uh, I'm sure they'll get it worked out. But as a Rangers fan, it's very, very nice to see them kind of twisting in the wind here until a new arena opens two seasons from now. But as a hockey fan, like this is like they got to get their shit together for like the, one more season before they they have their own home. I I just don't know. I mean, I heard Bridgeport's great this time of year. Oh god, yeah, smokestacks it's like oh. playing in New Jersey. But uh, everybody, as always, thank you for listening. Benny, I am extremely excited for what next weekend in our next show and our next pod entails. Uh, I'm hoping for a different variety of guests. I'm hoping for a different variety of topics. I think some KY. Oh, dude, I I, I can't <laughs> wait. I mean, I'm gonna be shitting pancakes for a week. So, uh, everybody, as always, thank you for listening, and we will catch you guys on a very live in ecstatic. Two, five, and ten. We will see y'all there. Bye. Bye.